0: And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, The Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same
1: time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show in which we talk about vacations. Welcome,
0: i'm arthur fromer and i'm pauline fromer and in the time ahead we're going to be discussing travel and that's always a conversation that i hope our listeners will join sometimes our listeners end up as guests on the show sometimes they call in to ask questions there's a lot of ways you can participate in the show and if you want to Email me at fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. If you don't want to be in the show, but you want to keep in touch, and we certainly hope you do, we hope you'll visit us at fromers.com. That's spelled F R O M M E R S dot com. That's our website, and we have lots of great information there. Whether you're planning a vacation, whether you're just dreaming of a vacation you'll do in eight months, 10 months, six months, who the heck knows right now? Uh, We hope you'll visit us there. We have such fun material up. Also, follow us on social media. You can look for the word Fromers on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Pinterest. You find it, you'll be talking to me that way too. So please come visit us in both those places. Since it's an odd time in travel, we're doing the show a little differently this time. We're going to be having guests throughout the show, people who I think embody the spirit of travel and what it can mean. And so our first guest for that is Rolf Potts. If you're an avid traveler, you know Rolf. He is the author of the seminal book, Vagabonding, which is the how-to guide on how to do long-term travel. But he's also written other wonderful books like Souvenir, about souvenirs one can find all over the world and what they've meant in history, how they... Uh, affect the people who collect them. He wrote a wonderful book of travel essays called Marco Polo Didn't Go There. I hope I'm getting that right, Rolf. So, you know, before I mess up more, let me introduce Rolf Potts. Hey, Rolf, welcome to The Travel Show.
1: Thanks, Pauline. That's great. And actually, you didn't mess up at all. So you're batting a thousand.
0: Oh, well, good. Well, let's start at the beginning. I know I'm reaching you in Kansas how does a guy from Kansas become a world-renowned
1: travel expert? Did your well, house well, how- get
0: picked up in a, hur- in a tornado, perhaps?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, set of, a set of circumstances that could end up being fortuitous. Uh, long story short, I ended up at a, at a young age. Well, I, I went vagabond, went traveling across the United States when I was 23 years old, thinking I would scratch the travel itch and get back to work and work for a good four decades until my life was ready for travel. Um, But that taught me that travel is something that's possible. So I actually moved overseas, started teaching English in Korea. And that's when things really opened up because, you know, a lot, almost nobody I knew when I was young had a passport in Kansas. It's just not Uh close to other countries. Right. And so it was through the circumstances of trying to travel when I was young that I realized that travel is an option throughout your life.
0: And so you just never went back to work. Did this worry your parents? Did they want you to settle down and get a job near them?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that's normal. My parents were supportive, all things considered. And because I became a travel writer, you know, I always joke that I just wasn't sitting, getting a suntan, doing nothing the whole time. Um, But when I started getting bylines in in, um, National Geographic Traveler and public radio and stuff. And then my parents relaxed a little bit and realized that I wasn't just frittering my time away on the other side of the world.
0: So the places you have lived the most right now are are Kansas, I would assume, and Korea, South Korea. Is that correct? Or have you had spells in other places or has it been constant vagabonding?
1: It's a mix. That's a hard question to uh, answer. Uh, Kansas definitely, which is sort of my home base, even though oftentimes I'm only here for a few months a year. In Korea, also Thailand, where I wrote Vagabonding. But then in the last few years, I've gone long periods of time living in Brazil or or Cuba or France, where I teach a class for a month every summer. So I guess there's a phrase that's come up called digital nomad. Um, And if you look at the Wikipedia entry for digital nomad, I'm on there. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I didn't realize that's what I was. Yeah. (laughs) I I think it's because of the influence of vagabonding. and, And combined with technology, people can really work from anywhere now. And so digital nomad... Movement has, has arisen, um, unbeknownst to me in a way, but I've been a digital nomad this whole time, I guess.
0: And interestingly, you have a blog right now, uh, or you have a blog on com. You also have a podcast in which you interviewed a bunch of digital nomads, some of whom are stranded uh, far From Home. Um, talk a little bit about that and what, what people are going through, knowing that this is going to run a couple of weeks after we speak. the show is
1: pre recorded. Sure. Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of people were out living their travel dreams, living their vagabonding dreams, and then suddenly they couldn't travel anymore. And it's interesting to hear how much in common we have with people on the other side of the world. Everybody's sort of worried about the same thing. Everybody is getting bad information or dubious information from their government, regardless of what their government is. Right. Um, and it, it just, but yet people are being very positive about things. Um, you know, a, a lot of people feel like in a sense that they're safer in like Colombia than in Germany. They're, mm. they're safer in Kenya than the United States. I don't know if that's um, empirically true, but people get this sense that getting on a plane, flying home through two connections is n- maybe more dangerous than staying where they are. So a lot of people are holding tight. They're talking a lot about the open heartedness and generosity of their local hosts in places like Denmark or Turkey. So a little bit of uncertainty, you know, that, that um, I talked to a woman who was traveling in India and was not wearing a mask because in the United States, they said, don't wear a mask. It doesn't do anything. Well, in India, that people saw her as an infection agent, you know, she was the only person not wearing a mask. And so she had to start wearing one regardless of whether or not it works simply because she was scaring people. Right. Um, And so I think uncertainty is common around the world. Hope and generosity is common around the world. And um, a lot of people are just keeping their spirits up and and waiting to see what happens next. This is a historical moment and we're not sure what's going to happen next.
0: Yeah, no, it's a very strange moment in time Uh, for anybody tuning in late, we are speaking with Rolf Potts. He is the author of Vagabonding, as well as many other books. You can visit him online at rolfpotts.com. And let's get back to travel as usual, because hopefully it will return to normal and we will be able to go out and see the world again. Rolf, you said that you've lived long periods in Cuba, which is fascinating, in Korea, what is it that draws you to places to settle down for a while, as opposed to flipped from place to place? Is there a difference in those destinations or is it just just happenstance?
1: I think it's, it's sort of a vague yearning. Like I, I, it's not like I um, compared empirical data about a hundred different cities in the world. I just thought, wow, Havana, I'm going to spend a month in Havana. And so that's what I did. And then I heard how beautiful Rio was. And I, Visited there briefly and wanted to go back, so I spent two months in Rio. And so oftentimes, and I encourage this in Vagabonding, my book, Vagabonding, that if you have a vague yearning to go someplace, go there, and then the reason you're there is what you find when you get there, because often what you find is better than what you'll read about anyway, or it's different and more nuanced than what you'll find anyway.
0: So you found that the reality actually did reflect your expectations? Was there any destination where the reality was so wildly different than what you thought you were going there for?
1: I think every every place is different than what you thought you were going there for. Um, Havana is a, a good example. I could probably give five other ones. But there's just so little information about... Uh, Cuba in the United States because it's sort of this politicized place. And in fact, when I went there, which was 2007, it was technically illegal. I had to go there via the Dominican Republic. Hmm. Um, and interestingly, being there made me realize how you know how inefficient and and you know the Castro regime was, and how hard it was to be Cuban. Although I met some amazing Cubans, and this happens everywhere, regardless of what the stereotype of the place is, you meet these exuberant people who live there, and you. Yeah, um, your heart is filled um, with the way they they live, but just sure. it was it was it's probably the only place where I've spent a month and never had a really good meal. You know, the the, the supply chains huh. were so, and they were they're making a lot. A lot of their agriculture was given over to citrus for export, for example. Huh. So I, I had amazing, memorable times in Cuba, but never ate a single good meal. Um, <laughs> and wow. So, the whole month was turning back these political stereotypes about Cuba in a very positive way, but in a way that did not leave my stomach happy.
0: Uh, did did something else make up for it? Was the nightlife great, or was there something else that, that offset the bad food?
1: Well, the nightlife was great, but this is this talking about expectations versus reality. Yeah. I went there and through a friend of a friend made this, met this guy named Marcel, who was 25, handsome, hip guy, and is part of a bagpiper club at the Asturias Federation. Right. <laughs> right. And, and, and so at the time, you know, there were some films going around. People were really into son and salsa, and I was too. And then I was hanging out with these super cool bagpipers, and I learned how to play the Asturian bagpipes. Now, this sounds strange, but actually, Cuba was settled by people from Celtic regions of Spain in the 19th century. Wow. And so it's literally an expression of Cuban culture to play these kinds of bagpipes that are different than, than Scottish bagpipes, but obviously have a lot of sonic similarities. So even though I was having fun and partying with my Cuban friends, they were bagpiper friends.
0: It's hilarious. You know, we have to take our first break, uh, but don't turn that dial. Uh, we will be right back after these messages. More with Rolf Potts, author of Vagabonding. listening to the travel show i'm pauline fromer here with my dad arthur fromer and on the line we have emily gillespie who wrote an article about something that is just a dream for many people it's called want to tour the world for a year here's how to save prepare travel and re-enter so you've re-entered emily welcome to the travel show Yeah, thank you. So I got to ask, how did you and your husband come up with this idea? Why did you decide to do it?
2: Yeah, um, my husband and I had always wanted to travel for an extended period of time. Uh, We met in Cape Town, South Africa, when we Mm. were doing internships abroad in college. So we met at this very adventurous time in our lives. And for us, that just never really went away. Right. Uh, so fast forward a few years, we were saving up to either buy a house or do a big trip. And Big trip uh, one,
0: did, it sounds yeah. like.
2: <laughs> yeah. Our, uh, my brother-in-law offered to sell us his house off the market, which in Portland, uh, where we live, it's, it's quite a big deal. So, yeah. Uh, it, it sort of forced us to make a choice. And, uh, you know, it ultimately came down to choosing between an experience or a thing. And for me, that's always been an easy call.
0: Yeah. Um, So you wrote a terrific article. It's in the Washington Post. And you go through stage by stage how to do this. And the first thing you have to do, which you just alluded to, is save up. What are some of your hints or tips for saving money for an enterprise this big? Yeah. Saving,
2: I thought, was going to be hard, but it ended up being very easy. We just sat down, uh, adjusted our budgets to really look at what we would be happy living without and what was worth sacrificing for this trip. Um, And then we set up an automatic transfer for each month, just had uh, a chunk of money go to a bank account that we never even looked at. Hmm. So we kind of just went about our lives.
0: <laughs> but you did have a goal in advance. I mean, according to the article, you knew that you'd need about $100 a day. So you you originally decided to try and save $50,000 for this trip. Ye-
2: yes, yes. we did. A, I, I guess I yeah missed that. We did uh, a little bit of research. Um, you know, we're not the first people to ever do this. Uh, so <laughs> right. we sort of landed on that knowing uh, that we... Would probably want to live uh, a little, a little more comfortably, but then also try and you know be budget conscious as possible.
0: And that kind abroad. of shaped where you were going to go, right? You weren't going to go it, to a destination where you would have to pay four hundred dollars a day if you only had a hundred right. budgeted.
2: Yeah, those decisions sort of went hand in hand. You're right. Um, we knew that you know if we could save up this amount of money, then uh, it could get us to these places.
0: So it was sort of you know, chicken-egg situation. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so you you mostly skipped Europe because of that, which you knew would be more yeah. expensive. Where did you end up going?
2: So we spent four months in South America. Mm. we never been to the continent. Uh, and then we spent another four months in Africa. Wow. Uh, and the plan was to spend four months in Southeast Asia, but... We got a little distracted uh, in <laughs> the Mediterranean area. So we spent about a month around the Mediterranean mm. and then three months in uh, Southeast Asia.
0: Wow. And your next big tip in the article is do your research on visas and always bring U.S. cash. Why are these two elements so important?
2: Yes. Yeah, so the first story I tell in my uh, article is our, we had a Bit of a snafu at the border in Bolivia uh, because the uh, visa there required 150 dollars in, and that's U.S. currency. Uh, so we quickly learned that uh, to always carry
0: U.S. cash
2: for situations like these. And um, and you you had, you of, got
0: you got across the border because of the kindness of a stranger, right?
2: Yeah, it was really a beautiful situation that happened and. I still smile thinking about it because it it just kind of reinvigorated our, you know, reasons behind doing
0: something like this. Right. You, you, you met someone who just said, I'll give you the money, which yeah. <laughs> speaks either to your charm or to the good goodness of that person. Um, now, you also say get your banking in order. What does that mean? So... When you're traveling uh,
2: internationally, a lot of credit card companies uh, will travel. Uh, w- sorry, will um, charge you international uh,
0: roaming fees, transfer
2: or? fees. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you do your research on the credit card you choose, you know we earning miles while you know we were saving, and then also while we were traveling was important to us. So sure. That we, could, we ended up paying a, for a lot of our. Uh, flights that way, um, and then also, uh, you know, some banks charge you ATM fees on their side. You can't really affect, yeah, you know, what a local bank uh, is going to charge you, whichever country you're in. But uh, we set up our banking with uh,
0: our money in a bank that does not charge. ATM fees on, on their end. So that was important to do in advance. Now, one of the things when you're traveling that long is you probably become very intimate with your luggage. Uh, how did yes. you, how, did you have a backpack? Did you have a wheat rollie? What, what did you do? And, and how did you make sure that you weren't a slave to your luggage?
2: Yeah, so we uh, both carried backpacks, um, 65, 70 liter backpacks. Hmm. Uh, just because we knew we'd be doing some a bit more, you know, walking across borders situations. So, um, you know, you do a little bit become a slave to your luggage. You're Mm. worried about, you know, making sure it is safe and and whatnot. But as long as you, you know, find a, a decent place to stay every night and, you know, kind of choose your transportation options, well, then I think, uh, you know, you end up, you end up making it work. It's sort of, it sort of becomes your home. Your your backpack does.
0: Now at the end, you talk about how to reenter. And is it hard to come back to everyday life after you've had this kind of incredible adventure?
2: Yeah, it is extremely hard. Um, In some ways, I'm still coming down from it. We spent, you know, an entire year waking up and having a new place to explore every day and always, having these fun excursions to look forward to, then suddenly you're back (laughs) in the United States and trying to find a job. So uh, Uh, it's
0: it's really hard. You you gave us all a lot of joy with this article. Um, Once again, we have been speaking with Emily Gillespie called Wanna Tour the World for a Year. Here's how to save, prepare, travel, and re-enter. I hope there's many more travels in your future. I'm sure there will be, Emily. Thank you so much for appearing on The Travel Show. Thank you so much, Pauline. Welcome back to The Travel Show. Uh, I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. We had another pre-taped segment. Now we have another one with Rolf Potts, who is the author of Vagabonding, the author of Souvenir. You might have heard his uh, podcast, which is called Deviate. Uh, Rolf, welcome back to The Travel Show.
1: Happy to be talking to you, Pauline.
0: So when we left off, we were talking about the month you spent in Cuba. Uh, where the food wasn't so great, uh, but, uh, but you had a lot of bagpiping, which is not what I expected you to tell us. Uh, hmm. What was the most surprising thing about the long period you spent in Brazil?
1: Okay, the long period I spent, maybe just how different a city can be from neighborhood to neighborhood. Ah. Um, because, you know, Rio is a great world city, um, but I was staying in the Catete neighborhood, which is sort of near the National Museum, which burned down quite hmm. recently, yeah. quite tragically. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of tourists or travelers go to Copacabana or Ipanema. And so in a sense, Catete had some other travelers, but it was more Brazilian, you know, maybe a little bit of a grittier place, not the favelas up on the hill. And so simply by being a local in Cachete instead of Ipanema or, or Copacabana or other places, I had an experience that was kind of unique to itself in its own way, yet very Brazilian. So it's, it's funny, people talk about having a Brazilian experience. I think in a city like Rio, you can have a hundred different ones in a single day.
0: Well, yeah, it's such a massive, uh, teeming, beautiful city. Did you ever visit the favelas? I know there's a lot of ethical questions about whether or not it's cool to do that, whether it's, as they call it, poorism tourism with a P. Uh, did you ever do that?
1: I, I did, and I did almost immediately. Um, I had friends and friends of friends who I met up with there, and they're like, oh, there's an art show up in the favela. <laughs> huh. So I think when you talk about these ethical things, it's really the tour bus favela tourism that sure. is the ethical thing, because at the end of the day, the people in the, living in the favelas, um, they're just people, right? And it's, it's amazing how resilient they are. You know, they, they, they hook up their own electricity. They solve a lot of problems that the civic government is not solving for them. And and then also, there's vibrant art communities and dance communities. The, the, um, the samba schools for Carnival are actually based in favelas much of the time. And so I think the ethical thing is, are we going is going in a tour bus through this neighborhood, treating these people like a human zoo, you know? And so, again, it goes right. back to that vagabonding principle that if you have a, a month in a place, you can relax and, and find a friend who will take you to the art show, whereas if you have two days in a place, you're more likely to go on that tour bus. And I'm not going to knock the tour bus, because even if there's an ethical thing, you learn about the favela. You see with your eyes what it's like to be poor in Brazil. And right. so I think... With the right heart, any tourist experience can be good. But obviously, the longer you have in a place and the more nuanced you can experience a place outside of that tour bus, the, the better it's going to be for your understanding of that place.
0: We're speaking with Rolf Potts, who is the author of the seminal book, Vagabonding. Uh, and, Rolf, I know that you usually teach uh, travel writing in Paris each summer, Um when all of this is over, and and I should say we're taping this in the heart of the coronavirus, nobody's traveling anywhere, uh, I think there's going to be a pent-up desire to travel, but I think people might travel differently. I think they might travel with more gratitude and with uh, and a more open heart, as we've been talking about. When you teach travel writing, what is it that you have to teach people about seeing and then communicating their experiences when they, they travel. What, what's, what are some of the essences of, of that discipline?
1: Well, honesty is a big one because travel writing is a mix of memoir, which is sort of inward looking, sort of interpreting human experience through your own experiences, and reporting, which is looking out and seeing how other people are living. And if you, if you lean too heavily in one way or another, then it's not going to be true travel writing. You know? Right. Right. And so oftentimes what what happens is people will cheat a little bit on the reporting part. They know how they feel, but maybe they don't fully know the other country. And by definition, you're not an expert at the travel writer. You're not an expert on Brazil or Cuba or, you know, Zimbabwe or wherever you go. But if you're honest, not just about what you see, but about how you're telling it and how you saw it, then that's important. And so we do a lot of exercises where I have them walk around Paris, uh, They the flanus, a very French concept of walking around a city with no particular goal and trying to turn stereotypes on their head. The the stereotype of the rude French Parisian, right? Yeah. The the, the stereotype of the elegant Parisian. And so really, it's a matter of digging into a place and honestly telling it like it is. Because oftentimes, people's first instinct is to write this heightened vision of the Notre Dame, when in fact, it sort of smells like cat pee when you're there, right? So include the cat pee and, and include the beauty, and it's a truer story as a result. Do you you
0: emphasize that they might have to do a little bit of research in advance? Uh, Because that's what I find with a lot of novice travel writers, that they just kind of splat on the page what they have seen, but it has no historic context or cultural context or any context beyond their idiosyncrasies. And if you don't know that person, that's not going to make that much sense.
1: Absolutely. Research beforehand, but also research afterwards, oftentimes. That research, you have a frame of reference for what you're researching uh, is as important as when you go. And so really, and also reading other travel books about a place, reading other travel articles, reading guidebooks of, of the kinds that, that you make, um, and just getting a sense for... Well, is a French person being rude, for example, or am I being rude because I'm trying to speak English in a country where English is spoken?
0: <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I think that's actually true, not just for travel writing, but for travelers, that your vacation will be richer if you go in knowing a
1: little bit about where you're going. Oh, absolutely. And, and when you were on my podcast, we talked about this, about how one gift the guidebooks give us is that context where, where we have a little package of starting point information to help understand the culture that otherwise we'd be discovering by accident.
0: Right, right. Absolutely. All right. For anybody tuning in late, we have been speaking with Rolf Potts, the author of Vagabonding. He's going to be back with us in another segment. We have another segment to go, and then Rolf will be back. Don't turn that gun. Up. Listening to the travel show, and I know that a lot of our listeners are avid travelers, which in this day and age means miles collectors. To help us talk about what programs um, treat their customers the best, we have Jill Gonzalez. She is an analyst for Wallet Hub. Hey, Jill, thank you for uh, for for calling into the travel show today. Thanks for having me. So, so tell me, how did you do this study? On frequent flyer programs?
3: Well, we looked at frequent flyer programs across various different metrics to really see which is not only the best overall, but is the best for what kind of flyer you are. So if you're a frequent flyer, maybe a lighter flyer, those results could look different. Sure. Um, but we looked at the 10 largest domestic airlines loyalty reward programs across 23 different man- metrics that ranges from the value of a rewards point or mile. To things like blackout date policies,
0: mm-hmm. and was there one that was the overall winner that gave you felt the best value overall? There was, yes. So number one overall was Delta Sky Miles. Hmm. Number- is it number- the first time to, that a Delta won that? No, this no. is actually the fourth year in a row. Oh boy! Okay, so what makes Delta so good?
3: So Delta is good for a number of reasons. Uh, right now, we're seeing that number one, it's Consistent. So Mm -hmm. we said that this has won four years prior, but also things like offering more rewards value, uh, an increase in that rewards value. And Delta is one of the only four major airlines whose miles do not expire because of
0: inactivity. Oh, Oh, yeah, that's important, especially in this day and age of slowed travel. Uh, What was number two in terms of who, who got the silver medal?
3: Number two was United Mileage Plus.
0: Why? Do you think
3: the United is another one of those four major airlines whose miles do not expire because Uh. of inactivity? So that certainly does help. Uh, they also give preference to frequent flyer program members when deciding whom to bump from overbooked flights. So oh. that is helpful too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We are speaking with Jill Gonzalez, who's an analyst for Wallet Hub, about which frequent flyer programs do the best by their customers. Now you said sometimes it would depend on what type of traveler you are. So if you are a frequent, frequent flyer, what what's the best for you?
3: So if you are a frequent, frequent flyer, so let me break down the spending here too. Uh, A light flyer spends around $500 on airfare per year average, more like $4,000. Frequent, more like $7,000. So that is kind of the breakdown between uh, who is flying what, Uh Uh, and if you are a frequent, frequent flyer, Uh, The best is actually going to be Alaska Airlines. Hmm. If you are an average flyer, that's going to be Delta Airlines. And if you are a light flyer, then Southwest.
0: That's Uh, surprising because I think of Delta and Southwest as having far more routes than Alaska. Why does it do the best for the people who are flying a lot?
3: So it really comes down to its rewards value. Uh, It has the most rewards value at $20.23 per $100 spent. So obviously when you're spending more,
0: you want that higher value. Sure, absolutely. And so for people who almost never fly, uh, what is the best program? And and does this take into account the fact that a lot of people are, are not collecting their miles by flying anymore? They're getting them through credit card purchases?
3: So this would just look at the loyalty uh, programs themselves. I Nothing see. Nothing to do really with the credit cards that come along
0: okay. with them. Okay, all right. So in terms of the uh, people who only fly every once in a while, uh, which one is best for them? Again, I'm sorry.
3: That would be Southwest Rapid Rewards.
0: Interesting. And so why is is that best for the probably the non-business traveler, I'm guessing, if they don't fly that much?
3: Right. So that, because you're not spending as much, you don't necessarily need more when it comes to that rewards value. Uh, However, you know, when it comes to things like canceling or postponing flights, Southwest tends to offer the most flexibility.
0: Hmm. Do, uh, obviously, they don't allow people to, there aren't really ways to upgrade with Southwest. How does that play into all of this?
3: Right. So, that's one thing that you don't really get is the upgrading. However, because we're looking at light flyers, we also see they don't tend to opt for upgrading. Right, so
0: kind of a wash for them. Right, I know that it's. I know that before coronavirus happened and before there was a travel slowdown, it was harder to upgrade than to get a frequent flyer ticket with your miles. I, I heard a miles expert saying that once. Had that been your uh, finding?
3: Well, we don't exactly look into uh, if there's any kind of difference there between upgrading and getting an actual ticket for it. We do look at things like blackout dates. Uh, again, points expiring sure. and the bigger, the bigger
0: Yeah, the particular. bigger issues. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking with you. Once again, we've been talking with Jill Gonzalez. She is an analyst for Wallet Hub. If you're a frequent flyer mile user, do look at their study. Thank you so much, Jill. Anytime, have a good one. You're listening to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my father, Arthur Fromer. And this hour has really flown by. On the line, we still have Rolf Potts, author of Vagabonding. Uh, Rolf, can I ask you the big question? Because we're, as I said before, this show is pre-taped. We're pre-taping at a time when nobody is traveling. Uh, What is it that is important to you, about the activity of travel. Why should we let it come back into our lives when all this is over?
1: Well, I think the thing that travel offers us as people is, is, is similar to what we're dealing with during this time of pandemic. And that's a weird parallel to make, but in a way, travel at its best forces you to adapt. It forces you to admit that you don't know everything. And that you sort of have to change tack as you go and depend on other people and depend on kindnesses and uh, find kindness in yourself. And so those are lessons that apply directly to what we're going through now, even at home. And I look forward to getting back into that situation. You know, a year ago, I went back to Southeast Asia. I traveled in Sumatra after wanting to go there for 20 years. And I felt like I was 28 years old again, you know? And mm-hmm. I, so I think travel really gives you a chance to renew yourself and discover that core humanity and, and just realize that we do have all these tools to adapt and to handle things as they happen. And travel can really sharpen that and it can really sharpen our sense for, for, um, for our own kindness and our own potential.
0: Yeah, beautifully said. Thank you, Rolf. So where do you hope to go? What's your first trip going to be when all of these uh, curfews are lifted?
1: Well, my heart is broken because I was going to take my nephew who just graduated from high school to Italy and Switzerland <laughs> to, do yeah. a, to do a year rail trip that I wasn't able to take when I was a teenager, and now that looks impossible. Um, so I'm maybe that will get shifted to this fall, but he might be in college by then. Right. Um, so I would really love to get back to Europe. I know that's not a very healthy time, place right now, as we're just recording this, but um, I'm an old Asia traveler, and I'm at a point in my life where Europe feels like strangely enough, undiscovered territory for me. And I'm really excited about getting back to places like uh, Italy and Switzerland and Germany where I haven't been before. Obviously, I should uh, wait until those are safe to go to. But those are really places that still capture my imagination. And I will go there at some point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Dad, where would you go very quickly?
1: Where would I go? I would go to the Scandinavian countries, Pauline, whose impact
0: on me still remains as before. I remember so vividly my first visit to the Tivoli Gardens in Copenhagen, my first visit to the Vaza warship in Stockholm. But beyond that, learning about two countries that that, uh, are so different from ours in their response to economic and social uh, questions, that that's where i would go that's, that's where, where i would go. return well hopefully we will all be on the road soon uh, rolf let me thank you so much for for anybody who wants to get rolf's books they're available as ebooks you can get Vagabonding. you can get marco polo didn't go there you can get souvenir or visit rolf at rolfpots.com please visit us at fromers.com see you next week